We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. God bless you. Welcome to Refuge Freedom Stories. I'm your host, Johnny T. And today my guest is Guy Morris. Guy became a homeless runaway at an early age on the streets of LA, but through a series of events and accepting Christ into his life, he hitchhiked through the desert, graduated from college, had a long career in global energy, high tech and software, wrote songs for Disney records, recorded multiple CDs and produced an award-winning espionage webisode series that brought the FBI to his home. Guy, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Johnny. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on board. I know that I've just scratched the surface of a very interesting life and career. So why don't we kick it off with your journey of faith? Because we mentioned, you know, that you accepted Christ at a young age. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. As you mentioned, I left home as a runaway when I was 13. And I lived in LA for a while. I spent time under bridges. Under If it was raining, I would sometimes even sleep in trash cans, in doorways. If it was a car that had a door open, I'd sleep in the back seat. I worked with migrant workers in order to eat. And as miserable as that was, as dangerous as it was, as hungry as I would get at times and cold, that was a better alternative to the violence and the vulgarity and the abuse of every level that I was getting at home. So I was fairly tender. I went home briefly for about a year to get a GED, which is a sort of a high school equivalency without really completing high school. And I was able to actually do that because working with migrant workers basically gave me credits. It wasn't that I was actually educated. I was functionally illiterate. But during that time, typical Southern California gang neighborhood, I basically got involved in a fight and was suspended from school. And on my way home from school, this fellow that we knew at school as being one of the quote unquote Jesus freaks saw me in the middle of the day, basically heading home, went out from behind me and then basically started following me, which was not a cool thing to do on the street. (laughs) And so he got close. I turned around and I grabbed his shirt and I basically said, what do you want? And I was basically going to punch him. And unexpectedly, Just out of the blue, he laid his hand on my shoulder and started praying. And then he started praying in tongues. Mm. I did not know what to make of it. At first, I was totally confused. And then the Holy Spirit just grabbed hold of my heart. 
We sat down there. It was a dirty street gutter in a small town in Southern California. My clothes were already bloody, so whether they got dirty didn't matter. And he preached to me. I, I asked the Lord into my heart. And when I got home and told my mother, she basically she slapped me because she thought it was just some sort of phony ruse to get out of getting in trouble for being suspended. But that began my spiritual journey. I had never been to a church, but other than that, I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about Christ. I didn't, I didn't, had never really read the scriptures. And so this kid gave me his Bible and I went home and I started reading as much as I could understand. And a few months later, when I got my GED, I left home. I hitchhiked to Arizona and joined a non-denominational Christian commune that was associated with a non-denominational church. And that grew into my roots because we, we had daily Bible studies. There were worship services throughout the week. I, I could fellowship and get to know people that did not have my background. My nickname at that church, ironically, was Punk because of how I dressed and acted. A few years later, I wound up getting married and uh, my wife got pregnant right away. It was not long after that. I don't normally tell this story, but we were in prayer because I, I was working a really tough job delivering produce. And I would have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, get there at five o'clock in the morning. I'd work a long 12-hour day lifting crates and unloading crates and loading crates. And that was six days a week. And on Sundays, I would just be exhausted. We'd go to church, I'd come home and I'd have to sleep just to try and catch up. Mm -hmm. And so my wife was very unhappy. She wanted me to be able to spend more time at home. And so we were praying whether I could send her back to work just long enough for me to find another job. And in that prayer, it was one of the few times in my life where I really felt the Holy Spirit cut through all of the mind stuff and self stuff and everything else to basically send a message that I would never have expected. The Holy Spirit said, I want you to go to college. It's like, well, that's not a job. You know, I didn't even finish high school, you know, going to college. That's ridiculous. That's for smart kids who work hard and get good grades. And I was told from the time I was young that I was stupid. And so we went back to prayer. And a few minutes later, it came in even stronger. I want you to get up right now, go to the phone, call the university and ask for an application. You are going to go to college. So I did. And when I told my first wife what I was doing, she thought, are you nuts? I said, what? She's like, well, not you. No, 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 no. Come on. We got we to gotta figure this other thing out. We, we need money. Well, this is crazy. Maybe God's going to give me a job if I'm just obedient to do this one stupid thing. Because I never really thought it would go anywhere. It was already like the beginning of August. School was going to start or maybe July. School was going to start in, in late August. And I said, this is crazy. There's no way. This is just insane. So as it turns out, I had to get my transcripts. I had no SAT stores. I had none of the other preparatory stuff. I realized in that transcripts, I had gone to 16 schools. I could only remember three of them because of the amnesia from my childhood. I had to get my wife's help to actually fill in the application because I couldn't really fully understand what I was supposed to do. I picked a major of electrical engineering of all things because <laughs> I closed my eyes and I pointed at the paper. The Lord didn't tell me what to study. It just said, go back to college. I said, well, I don't know, you know, and I, I just pointed. Well, lo and behold, two weeks later, I was accepted. Now, my first thought was, holy cow, they'll let any idiot into college. <laughs> I thought you had to be special. I said, but I still don't have any money. I'm still trying to deal with this. So I threw the application. I said, well, okay, Lord, okay, I, I did what I was supposed to do. And I, I threw the acceptance letter in the trash. Well, the very next day, I received a letter from my father-in-law. I hadn't even told my best friend I was doing this because I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, you know, what am I doing trying to apply to college? And he was concerned that I was going to be able to provide his daughter with enough support that she deserved. He felt that I had had a rough start in life and I deserved a break in life. And he wanted to know if I would consider going to college. He would pay my books and tuition, but I would still have to work by my rent and my food and stuff like that. 
I dug the acceptance letter out of the trash. And a couple of weeks after that, I had started college. Now, obviously, being functionally illiterate, I struggled. Mm -hmm. But because I had felt that I had been sent there, not of my own will, but to do whatever God wanted me to do there, and I had no clue, no clue at all what that was, I couldn't give up. I probably slept an average of four hours a night for five years because I was not only going to have to do this, I had to give it my best. And over time, something transitioned about halfway through where I went from getting C's and D's to getting almost all A's and B's and then all A's. And by the time I graduated, I was at the top of the dean's list. I had been offered full scholarship at that school to go to grad school. Mm. I had been accepted into Harvard, go to grad mm. school. I got a job even in grad school at IBM. And all of this was based on me building a macroeconomic model that outperformed the Federal Reserve. And so while I still was convinced I was stupid, that must have been a fluke, that started my career. I've always had this sense that I, I wasn't sure what I was destined for, but I knew that I had the assurance that whatever that was, that the Lord engineered it beyond anything I could have imagined. I never should have been accepted into college. I would they, Even when they accepted me, they admitted that I was like 27 units short of minimum requirements, but they were going to let me in anyway and work through all those requirements while I was there. So that gave me my roots and my faith with being at that church for several years and going to college, and that started my life. Now, to be honest, once my career started and the pressures of all that really started coming down on, on me in ways that I never expected, my career was doing well. I, I would quickly rose up where I was reporting to vice presidents and CXOs because I had a gift for being a thought leader and an innovator and just because I was willing to take risks that nobody else would take. But the post-traumatic stress from my youth came back to I developed multiple addictions. I had social issues. I wound up getting divorced. I was chronically depressed. I was hyper anxious all the time. And that was also a path I had to go through between church and therapy and 12 steps and just sweating it out in prayer for decades to say, I know this isn't why God sent me to school. I know this isn't the call that I have. I didn't understand why I was struggling with those things. I wouldn't be diagnosed with PTSD until my, my 50s. For all of that time, it was everyone basically trying to say, well, it's just this or it's just that. But it was a determination. And I didn't want my past to define my future. I believe that God gave me a chance to change my destiny in life. And I needed to find a way to be true to that. So I led worship for a number of years in, in various churches, most notably in Venice, California. I wrote worship songs. I wrote other songs. I recorded. As you noted, I recorded for Disney, wrote for Disney for a while. But I was always searching for that reason for my transformation. And years later, decades later, it was painful to go through, but I'm glad I did. I've reached a level of mental health and, and spiritual health that I, I never could have imagined as a boy in my wildest dreams. The Lord has blessed me in so many ways. And even when I had lost fortunes, the Lord took care of me. I always had this fear that I was going to end up homeless again, end up on the streets again. And I never, I, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm living well. Now I'm blessed. I've been married 30 years. My wife is an absolute angel. She loves the Lord. Our health is good. And I feel like I've been able to go through all of these things without drinking the Kool-Aid. And now I'm finally focused, I think, on what God ultimately wanted me to do.
There's so much of God's hand in what you've just described, you know, from his initial grace and mercy reaching out to you through someone that you didn't know and didn't expect to just say, hey, can I pray for you? Or I'm just going to pray for you. Scriptures just popped into my head when you were talking about how God takes the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And like he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I mean, he opens doors that no man can close. Like the list goes on and on and on. I can see how the truth of God and his character has just been expressed through the way that your life from even its conception to where you are now. That journey, you know, we we read through the Bible of many different characters and they all have different kinds of stories and experiences with God. And and yours is very much like some of those. It's, It's critical that we look in the mirror at ourselves virtually and physically and spiritually and and take an assessment of who we are and where we stand before God. And we need to do that every day. Exactly. It's a journey, as you said. It's it's not a destination. There's a lot of pursuit of excellence. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's a moving target, but it's an extremely hard target to reach and to maintain. Because as soon as you hit excellence, one of the slightest, smallest things will drop you from that. I was reading in Psalms just the other day in the version that I was reading about how when we drift away from God just by maybe one or two slight things or whatever, it, it insults God. And it just struck me, you know, how cautious and prayerful we really need to be about our actions because the last thing that I want to do is insult God in light of the mercy and the grace that he's shown. Who am I to arbitrarily do something or say something or act a certain way that would insult his representation in me? Right, right. And in part because I was dealing with so many dysfunctional issues that I had to kind of work my way through and I couldn't work my way through them until I understand the the roots of them. And that that took some time. Willingness to be humbled, not just once, but and 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 until it had the effect God wanted. Yeah, amen, for sure. We we talked about it earlier that you're also an author and you have a number of books out. So how did you transition your experience in life and your message into your writing? And what are the things that you write about? I'm super curious to hear how the FBI ended up at your house. Oh, well, that was actually <laughs> one of the sparks that really led me to create. I was still working at the time. And in my research, I happened to actually stumble on an Associated Press article. So I felt, okay, it was a valid article. It was one of those little two paragraph, very short things you'd see kind of as a in a magazine at the last five, five pages or something, right? And the article only said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And the second paragraph said, if I knew anything to contact this FBI agent or this scientist professor at the labs. And it just stopped me in my tracks. It floored me. And I read it over and over. And my first thought was somebody at the Associated Press is going to get in trouble for making a boo-boo. It should have said this Mm -hmm. program was stolen or Mm -hmm. that it was corrupted or maybe that it just malfunctioned, that they misplace it. You know, how do you misplace a program? I said, but it said that a program had been stolen. Now, I looked up and I realized that that particular laboratory was an NSA spy lab. They Mm -hmm. they did signals and cryptology. They wrote the Suxnet virus, which brought down... On the Iranian centrifuges. Mm. So then I started thinking, okay, a spy program has escaped the NSA and they don't know how to find it. <laughs> and I thought, that is an amazingly cool story. And I said, okay, this, 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 there's got to be something more to this. So I actually geeked out and I spent months trying to, on the side, after work, researching, trying to figure out. And I had a technology background and I understood a lot of the basic, uh, enough about technology that I, I tried to kind of say, well, there has to be some form of technology that exists in the commercial sector that's being adapted to do, you know. So I basically went through and, and I, I talked to engineers 
engineers and developers and architects. And I didn't tell them what I was doing, but I basically solved my problem. I wanted to solve two things. One was how could a program escape the NSA? Now, escape implied intent. It implied some form of intelligence. Mm -hmm. It implied the ability for the program to move itself. And then lastly, and this is important, to basically go back and erase the log trail so that people didn't know where it went. It basically a stealth program. And then I, I sat back and I said, wow, okay, that, that could possibly work. If I were Q at James Bond, you know, <laughs> what would I want that program to do? And I came up with a list uh, of capabilities. Now, at the time, a friend of mine was an indie film producer, and I went to him and he was always looking for cool stories. And, and so we, we said, this is a really, really amazingly cool story. But he didn't really want to do a film. And we said, well, this is an internet-based program. And it turned out that was true. And so, well, let's create a webisode series. We wrote scripts. We created characters. The program was turned into a character in this in the script named Sylvia, which stood for Sophisticated Language Virtual Intelligence Algorithm. Webisode series was a major hit. We got like 24, 25 awards and we were we would crash the servers two or three times. And so we got optioned by one of the studios. We were going to put this in production. It was going to go from a nickel and dime sort of approach to kind of doing a full, full-on production kind of approach. And two weeks before the option was due, two FBI agents showed up at my door. They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they were convinced should be top secret. <laughs> yeah. um, they did not appreciate. Now, I was terrified. And they didn't seem to share my sense of humor. Mm. They went to the studio, killed the deal. I lost a lot of money, tucked my tail between my legs and went out and got a real job. I think it was at Oracle at that point. But I never forgot that incident. One, because I just thought it was so cool that the FBI validated what I had done. So when I retired from Microsoft, my mind was still very active. I still wanted to do something. I realized that I was going to resurrect that baseline story. I didn't want it just to be another espionage series. I wanted to talk about the true nature of artificial intelligence, the risks that governments and corporations aren't really talking about, developers don't really talk about in the news, why it could have a negative impact on society over the next decade in, in major ways, and how it basically related to prophecies. And so in my book series, that started with Swarm, and then the follow-up book, which is The Last Ark, this program is basically part of an, uh, sort of almost like an anonymous, part of an, an underground group of informants and hackers. But ironically, the program has now decoded and time process. None of the other characters really understand what that means. None of the other characters quite see the analytical approach that an AI would take to say, well, what are the probabilities? What are the regression analysis? How do I tie current events to these events? Is there a correlation? And if so, what's the next event to occur? And that vehicle of very hypercurrent day, politics, religion, science, trade, climate, all of those issues together, underlying with an artificial intelligence became a really interesting vehicle for me to talk about those things through the lens of prophecy. And uh, and that so that became sort of the theme of the, of the two of two of my three books. That also then led me to other research where pre-Babylonian priests had hidden tens of tons, billions and billions of dollars of temple treasures. And who has control of those things and how would they be used in, in terms of either building a third temple or, you know, part of part of the end times. And so that's a theme within my book, The Last Art. And it also deals with artificial intelligence, uh, AI combining with quantum AI, politics, real fun. Now, my, my other book, The Curse of Cortez, took me well over a decade to research. It deals with a true lost treasure of a billion dollars 
Well, sounds awesome. So if people want to find your books or find out more about you and what you do, where would they go? The best place is guymoresbooks.com. It has the books, it has the buy links, it has fact versus fiction pages, it has links to research where if I'm talking about how programs can basically rewrite their own code, I link to references. It has image libraries of actual locations where these things have taken place, some videos, my media kit is on there, some of my podcasts and other things are on there. And so it's a great place to get started and learn more about the factual foundations of what goes into these books. Okay. So last question. If you're going to tell somebody one thing about God, what would that be? God can have a life-transforming effect on you if you're willing to see, think in terms of obedience to his word rather than looking for material blessings. And if you're willing to pursue that year after year, decade after decade, there is a transformative effect on your life. And I'm a living example of going from extreme poverty and abuse into a place of prosperity and blessing of hating myself, to basically being respected by many, of being lost through a very vulgar lifestyle that I started into living with a, a blessed wife. And it would not have happened if I hadn't been willing to be obedient to the word through my transformations, through the submitting my addictions, and being obedient to what God said I should be, rather than the false Christianity of looking for God to bless everything I do. And it's through obedience to the word that we get transformed. And as painful as that journey was at times, I could not even imagine what my life would be like if I, I well, the problem is, yes, I can't imagine. I, I already know what my life would have been like had I not taken that journey and said yes. And so you, you have to look past the, the, the scriptures teach us that in the last days, there's going to be an apostate church. So don't look at the church as your example of who Christ is. You have to read the scriptures and really look at who Christ really was and applying that to your own life, even when it's hard, difficult, painful, and makes you unpopular. But the transformation that you get that is well worth all of it, in, in my view. And I, I wouldn't give it up for the world. Amen. Well said. Thank you so much, Guy, for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you, Johnny. For hopefully we can have you back again sometime in the near future. Would love to. Thank okay. you, sir. God bless. God bless. Lord, I know sometime I wonder from you. And I know there are things I shouldn't do. I'm sorry, Lord, I really am. I'll keep on trying the best I can. And when you see
that you have enjoyed the last half hour as much as I did. Thank you again to Refuge Ministries Canada for hosting the show. So until next Friday, may God richly bless you with peace, love, and happiness. We at Refuge Ministries are so blessed by the success of Refuge Freedom Stories and podcasts. In addition, we focus on youth prison ministry, release kits, and many other diverse outreaches to the needs of our community. As a nonprofit, there are many costs involved, however, and we are asking for your support. Financial gifts can be made via our website at www.refugeministriescanada.com or by calling 519-701-0108. Your giving makes this work possible, and we thank you in advance for your support. That's 519-701-0108. God bless you.